This is the best podcast. BEST stands for Business, Entrepreneurship, Startups, and Technology. I'm your host, Adam Sokolich, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon. Truly exciting conversation, and I'll get into the introduction, and we'll get in started in just a moment. I want to give people a heads up, though. About halfway through, we are going to get this open up for Q&A, so get your questions ready. Go ahead, raise your hand if you're interested, and of course, show your love to Walter. Uh, click on his account and give him a follow. But Walter, I know you're a busy guy. It sounds like you're going to be doing a lot of interviews. Uh, so are you ready to get started? You ready to dive in? Actually, uh, I'm doing you, but I'm not going to do many interviews till the book comes out. I just love Twitter Spaces, and I always follow. I'm looking at all the people uh, who have joined already, and most of whom I listen to. So this is not something I'm doing a lot of. I'm excited to be here with you, Walter, and to be diving in about your process and writing this great biography, Elon Musk. So let me just give you a nice little introduction for folks in the audience. If you know Walter, fantastic. But if you don't, Walter is writing this biography on Elon Musk, but he's also the author of Codebreaker, the Leonardo da Vinci biography, Steve Jobs, Einstein, Benjamin Franklin biographies, The Innovators, and many more. He's also the professor of history at Tulane. He's been the CEO of the Aspen Institute, the chairman of CNN, the editor of Time Magazine. Truly impressive, all of that. And then, of course, you are writing this biography on Elon Musk. Uh, so folks, let's just start diving in. I want to know more about your process, Walter, about this story. So to start, tell us how this whole idea of writing a biography about Elon Musk came about for you. It was um, a mutual acquaintance of mine, uh, Antonio Gracias, who was on his board. I was uh, I'd just done a book on Jennifer Doudna, who helped invent the technology called CRISPR, which is, allows us to gene edit. And I was interested in finding another innovator, and he put me in touch with Musk. We talked for about an hour on the phone, uh, and I said, look, if I do this book, I don't want to just have 10 interviews or 20 interviews. I want to be by your side for two, two and a half years. Every meeting, I want to just shadow you so I can see it in operation. And secondly, I don't want you to have any control over this book, and I don't want you to even read it in advance. And uh, when he agreed to that, I said, well, here's a guy doing rocket ships, a guy doing batteries, bringing us into the era of electric vehicles, a true person pushing the boundaries of manufacturing innovation. I said, this sounds great. I said, OK, I think I'll do it. And at the end of the conversation, he said, oh, OK, do you mind if I tell a few people? I said, no, that would not be a problem. And I walked back uh, down from where I was uh, talking to him. And there were a group of people I knew were hanging out. And they said, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I said, what's that? We well, said, well, we keep getting email messages that you're doing Elon Musk. And at the end of our conversation, he tweeted out a tweet, which you could probably find on Twitter, saying, if you're interested, Walter Isaacson's doing my biography. So I guess that kind of locked me into it when I saw that tweet. 
but it's been a really fascinating ride. Oh, I love that. And of course, it started with a tweet. So before we dive into more of that that work with Elon himself, I want to get kind of the whole story. Kind of before you have conversations with Elon, how do you generally think about writing a story, writing a biography, like the ones that you've done before for, for Steve Jobs and things like that, that have informed you for this one. But before you started talking with Elon, how did you start thinking or planning and researching ahead of time? Well, with a live subject like Musk, you start talking to all the people who dealt with him and all around him. But in this case, I really dove right into it. As soon as uh, he said, let's begin, I was down in Boca Chica near Brownsville, walking the lines where he was building the Starship for SpaceX and visiting the uh, Gigafactory and, uh, that was being built in Austin and hanging out in Hawthorne, California. So this one really began not by doing background research, but by just diving into the deep end of being with him all steps of the way. And one of the things he did that was very transparent, he said, I'm gonna just tell everybody to talk to you. And I said, even your adversaries, your enemies, even the Martin Eberhards you've had struggles with, even your former wives, he said, everybody. And so I think I talked to 250 people quite extensively for this book, but he was quite encouraging that everybody, including people he had fired or uh, people he got along with, should talk. So it seems like, Walter, you pretty much had full access. It doesn't seem like there's any restrictions whatsoever. and, And he's providing that to you. Is that right? Yeah, it's full access, and he's made very few restraints. To be honest with you, the the restraints are almost self-imposed ones, things that either involve children under the age of 18 that, you know, may be juicy but may not be relevant. Some of the stuff is relevant. Or sometimes uh, financial forward-looking information I just keep my mouth shut on that. Uh, But generally, he said, just use your good judgment. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Okay. So what were some of the complexities as you think back over the two, two and a half years of working with him and and talking with him and all these people, I think he said 250 of them, were there one, two, three or so of the bigger complexities? What were those for you through this experience? You know, I always write about people who are smart, but being smart is a dime a dozen. What really matters is being innovative, being questioning, questioning every requirement, being rebellious, taking risks. And that's what a lot of great innovators, starting with Leonardo da Vinci, have in common. Uh, With Musk, he has an amazingly good engineering mind, but the difficulty, as anybody who's dealt with him knows, and he's self-aware enough to know, is he has a very dark streak to it. He has a dark streak coming out of a very brutal childhood, a violent uh, childhood, a childhood in which he had very strong psychological difficulties with his father. His father also has a very dark streak to him, sometimes called demon mode by, that's what Claire Boucher, um, uh, Musk's uh, uh, friend, calls it. And so watching him go into demon mode with a real lack of empathy. And, you know, his brother Kimball is over-endowed with empathy. But I think that Elon is uh, not either endowed or burdened with empathy. And so he can be a much tougher leader. So I I tend to be kind of an easygoing, 
always want people around me to like me type. And watching somebody who did not care about anything except the mission, the mission of getting something done, uh, that's what I have to weave into this book because there are light strands and brilliant strands with Musk, but also dark strands. And as a biographer, you get to the complexity of normally in life, we can say, okay, we admire the good parts of the person and we don't like the dark strands in the person. The biographer has to try to figure out how are those strands woven together? So you can't just pluck out the strands and say, I wish he wouldn't be so impulsive. I wish he wouldn't tweet nasty things. If you pluck out that strand, do you lose the whole cloth? And that's what this biography is about. Ooh, so let's dive in a little bit more about your relationship with Elon. How did that evolve over time from the beginning towards the end? Of course, things probably changed amongst that. But also, what is your process for developing a relationship with a source or the figure that you're focusing on? I try to stay in the background. I'm at a lot of things. Uh, Musk, as you know, lapses into silences sometimes where he's batch processing information he's gotten over the past hour or two. And you learn not to fill the silences. You just sit there. And our relationship was one where I was an observer and a fly on the wall. I didn't go out drinking with him and I didn't, uh, I didn't try to be his buddy, but he was then more and more open as he saw that I was just going about the task of doing the book. Were there, it makes me think about, you just mentioned like going out to a bar at the same time, just having a formal uh, conversation with him. Were there times or ways of having these conversations that you found like that were just better conversations? Maybe it was when it was you and him it was one-on-one -on -one quiet, or maybe you're walking the floor of a Tesla factory. What, when were those moments of just pure connection almost. I can't imagine they were all perfect per se, but tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, what happens is you develop a spidey sense sometimes of when does he want to talk and when not. And it could be three in the morning or two in the morning by phone. He'll, he'll be around, he'll, we'll be texting each other and he'll say, you got a moment. And then we'll talk for an hour, maybe two hours. Sometimes it's walking, you know, one of the things that makes him really different from a Steve Jobs or anybody else is he doesn't just care about the product. He cares about the machine that makes the product, the factory. And so if you're walking in these big tents and uh, Boca Chica where they're doing uh, Starship, or if you're walking in Hawthorne or in uh, Texas on the assembly lines, that's when he, if you just kind of let him think and process things, he might just start talking and telling stories. And then there'll be times we'll just be sitting in the conference room between meetings, I'll be quiet, and suddenly he'll start recounting stories. And that was the fun part, because he's a great storyteller with a real sense of humor when he's in a good mood. And he'll tell you about the you know 2018 when he was going into meltdown mode or being on quash for the launching of the rockets in 2007 or 2008. And uh, some of the tales of the uh, surges when they had to put 5,000 Teslas out per week and nobody thought they could do it, uh, he will recount those tales. And then after a while, you peel back enough layers and he starts talking about his childhood. He starts talking about his father, things he hasn't really talked about before. And you realize 
that that's one of the keys is peeling back that layer and letting him talk both about his childhood and his relationship to his father. So it sounds like there's a lot of volatility just in regards to having a conversation. And one, it's about uh, his past and his childhood. And the next, it might be something pressing going on in his life. How do you handle the volatility going through following a, a, a person like Elon? I think you just be patient when he wants to talk about the material qualities of Inconel and how it's going to work in valves and a Raptor engine redesign. And you're standing under a group of Raptor engines being uh, looking like a spaghetti push because he hasn't simplified them yet. You just let him drill really deep into the material science and the engineering. And then when he kicks back and gets reflective and wants to talk about being beaten up on the playground, and then you're connecting it a bit to owning the ultimate playground, which is what you and I are talking on right now in Twitter, and you try to have him connect what it was like uh, having to endure what happened to him on the playground and his face being smashed against the steps and what his father did afterwards. And then you understand his feeling about bullying and other things, and you let it connect to current things like, why did you want to own the world's ultimate playground, Twitter? Ooh, and we'll dive into that in just a little bit. But it sounds like some of these, obviously, in the, in the, the book has not come out. Just letting people in the audience know it comes out in September. So we are a few months ahead. Truly exciting. Go check it out. You can click on Walter's profile. and There's a link there if you want to learn more. Uh, but at the, in, in the meantime, it sounds like there's going to be stories that were obviously. By the way, you can pre-order it. I don't want to be too much of a shell here, but. Uh, uh, it, it's available now for pre-order and there are links on Amazon, Barnes and Noble and your independent bookstores and on my Twitter. Uh, that was profile. a perfect, and I was going to show for you actually, Walter, by the way, for folks in the audience at the end, uh, I'm going to give away probably about five copies uh, of, of the pre-ordered books. So if you are interested, send me a DM and I will hook you. I'll sign some for you too, if you all figure out how to ah, do it. Awesome. So. Even better. Look at that. Thank you, Walter. So folks, if you're interested, first come, first serve, send me a DM and I will send out five of those gifting those to you guys. But uh, let's keep going on because it sounds like you're going to also learn a lot about Elon that you didn't know before. Tell us a story that was surprising to you, right? It doesn't have to be necessarily sad or happy or any of those necessarily emotions, but what was something that was unexpected going through this experience that really surprised you? I guess the way that the childhood and the father shaped personality and how that affected his understanding of risk, how that affected his, I mean, he's almost addicted to risk, Kimball says. Peter Thiel said most, you know, when I talked to him, he said most people he's worked with always try to avoid risk, you know, Elon Rumsfeld. Also in a, a, a desire for drama, both in his personal and in his professional life, uh, he's somebody who feels most comfortable when he's ordered up a hurricane or a surge. All of that connects to events when he was young. And it's an important thing because America has lost the ability to take risks and do great manufacturing. And there's a dark quality to his desire to take risks. It means he shoots off rockets or has full self-driving that he's almost ahead of his skis on. He, there are many incidents in the book where he does things like kind of ignore the FAA when he wants to shoot up a Starship heavy test. Uh, but the question is, 
is our aversion to risk, which keeps us from doing most things these days, like building high-speed rail, and his addiction to risk is that what allows him to be the only per, you know, entity getting American astronauts into orbit these days. Was there ever a moment for you, Walter, where you were, you were following along with Elon, you were with him personally, and you were like, oh, shh fill in the blank with the word right there, but some, like he's going through something massive right now and you are a fly on the wall experiencing that with him. And then obviously you might talk about this in your yeah. book, but, and so feel free to share and share what you may not want to, but now obviously the news would be public. So you'd be more open to sharing it. Yeah. Um, there were times, uh, for example, when I was walking with him, once at Starbase down in Boca Chica, once on a solar roof. We were climbing on top of a solar roof that was being installed. Uh, another time, uh, it, it involved uh, Tesla and uh, creating something where you see him go dark. I mean, it's just the face, uh, his whole demeanor. And it's because people aren't having a maniacal sense of urgency. And I saw that a lot of scenes, the first um, month at Twitter, where he would go dark because people didn't have that maniacal sense of urgency. And you knew what was going to happen. First of all, somebody was going to get reamed out. But secondly, he was going to order a surge. He was going to say, in 10 days, I want everybody to come to Boca Chica, and I want that rocket stacked on the launch pad. And the surges sometimes were meaningless. I mean, you know, they, you did a surge to stack Starship. 18 months before it was going to be ready, but it just extruded the shit out of the system. And it gave everybody that maniacal sense of urgency. That's one of his five or 10, five principles I talk about in the book. Uh, the other times like that, I'd be sitting in a room and he'd be with some poor finance person looking at the uh, cost of components of a Raptor engine. They go dark, and I'd know that he was just going to rip the person apart. And there are many scenes in the book where he does that with, uh, I won't name the names now, but you'll see them in the book. They all go on the record with me, where he just is, it's uncomfortable for me to be sitting there at times because he is just brutal about how somebody is fucked up. And the thing that I notice is that once he finishes doing it, and it was never physical, and it was almost done in a flat monotone, but he would just really attack people. Then a few days later, if they had absorbed the lesson, he'd forget about it. It would be as if he went into becoming from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde and then didn't even think that much or remember that much of how tough he had been on people. And 80% of the time, it was really good. It was like Steve Jobs used to do, except for one order of magnitude, you know, larger. Uh, 80% of the time it was good, but, you know, 20% of the time it just made people afraid to give them bad news and that type of thing. So I try to show in the book those moments where he gets into intensity and how effective that can be, but also to some extent how problematic. It can so be. when you're in, when you are there with Elon in those situations, how do you're talking about, I can imagine you experiencing that as a person, right? But also while you're trying to document the situation, how did you handle those situations? Maybe when there is a, 
a volatile situation or or something obviously very complex going on in Elon's world. Now, part of you, I can imagine, wants to sit back and just document and take it all in. But is, is there also an aspect of trying to dig in and, and maybe get inside the mindset of them? How do you handle those situations, I guess? Uh, definitely try to dig in. And in uh, quite a few cases, I went back a year later and revisited the incident to see what the outcome was. I went back to see, uh, I'll just use first names, you know, Andy or Lucas or uh, the person who was running Solar Roofs, for example, and say, okay, let's walk that back and see what happened. I also, you know, had to just be an observer. I, I never intervened, but sometimes I'd ask a Gwen Shotwell, and I'd be told, you know, the reason that young guy on finance screwed up is he just lost a child. His child died two weeks earlier. And I'd be tempted to go to Elon and say, you lost a child yourself. An infant child died. And I'd have to wait and let the story play out instead of being like the Heisenberg principle where my observation of the story would affect the story. So sometimes I'd wait a month or two later and let it play out and then ask, the question. Did you always feel like this, Walter, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, where while you're talking with him and you're documenting the process and you're thinking about it as a writer, I can imagine there's also instances when kind of like what you were just saying, hey, someone in finance just lost a child like you did. Now you're talking to him at a person to person level. Is that right? Yeah, but I, I try to make sure I'm there also as a reporter. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to him person to person. And sometimes I'll ask him abstractly about it, like, what about the empathy, whatever. And as I said a moment ago, I'm somebody who spends a lot of time caring that the people on this Twitter spaces and the people I'm having lunch with, that, you know, I try to be pleasing. And I noticed that Steve Jobs didn't do that. And he said, you know, when you're, you have the luxury, he was talking to me, of wearing a velvet glove and always speaking in polite ways that try to please people. But for me, if somebody does something that sucks, I got to tell them it sucks. And if they're a B player, I got to tell them they're a B player. Otherwise, I screw up all of Apple just because I'm trying to be kind to the person in front of me. Exactly the same thing Elon Musk said. He said, it's a form of egotism, meaning of my egotism, not his, that I want to, you know, be too empathetic as opposed to caring about the whole enterprise, caring about the mission. And so this is a complexity in the book, which is we always think a lack of empathy. And here's somebody who's, you know, talks about having Asperger's and being on the autism disorder spectrum. Uh, we talk about a lack of empathy as if it makes you a jackass or an asshole or a jerk, which, but we also have to figure out what, are, what does it do to an enterprise to have somebody who's maniacally focused on the mission? And it's sometimes not a pretty sight, but he is the only person getting us into the era of electric vehicles. He is the only person shooting American astronauts into orbit. And uh, and that maniacal sense of urgency, I thought, was going to destroy Twitter. I was there night after night where he fired 85% of the people. And I'm thinking, OK, whoa, let's see if it works tomorrow. And yet now Twitter Spaces is working and video is working and Rewind is working. 
So you have to balance that, that maniacal sense, that lack of empathy, with also a sense of mission that might get things done. Uh, Claire, Grimes, Claire Boucher, you know, Grimes, once said, demon mode, I just don't want to be around him when he's in demon mode. It's just so unpleasant. And then she paused and said, but demon mode is the one that gets shit done. Mm, wow, that's powerful. I've not also heard demon <laughs> mode before. Um, but let's go on that because you started touching on other folks that you've worked with. Obviously, have uh, you written biographies on several influential figures like Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci. So what do you believe sets Elon Musk apart from these individuals? What are those differences in your opinion? Well, let's take a difference from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs loved design. Uh, but when he had designed something and thought the chamfers on the iPhone or the curves on the you know, MacBook Air were beautiful, he almost just threw it over a wall to China and said, OK, you manufacture it. What Musk does is he makes sure his engineers and his designers and himself have desks right on the assembly line so they can watch every time something happens and a red light goes off on the assembly line and they walk to the red, it's called. And you have an iterative process where the designers know how it works with manufacturing. In the U.S., we've lost our ability to get a fingertip feel for manufacturing, which you need in order to have iterative innovation. By that, I mean, you know, constant innovation to say, here's how we can make something better. Here's how we can manufacture things better. That reminded me of, in some ways, the great engineer designers of the time. And it was a maxim of Leonardo da Vinci, which was that he always called himself the engineer and artist for the Duke of Milan, because he knew that the engineering and the making of things were integral to how to making sure you knew how to design it. And so he reminds me of the great engineers who realize that beauty and technology and manufacturing have to be done hand in hand. Ooh, I love that. I love that. All right. We're almost halfway through. So I just want to. All right. Let's get to some questions. I'm there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'll have another one or two in just a moment. But while I do that, quick reminder, folks, uh, we're having this fantastic conversation with Walter Isaacson, the author of the upcoming biography called Elon Musk about obviously Elon Musk. Um, so if you have questions about his writing process, about the stories inside, et cetera, go ahead, raise your hand. I'll bring you up in just a few minutes. Of course, just be as respectful as possible. Uh, but we'll be going for about another 25 minutes or so, and then we'll be sure to wrap up. So go ahead, raise your hands, and I will bring you up. Um, but one I love you. I've been reading the comments. Somebody said they saw me eating with Kimball in Austin, uh, Giga, Texas. Yeah. Kimball's a great guy. That, that was actually, so I have personally two more questions for you. And one of them was about the other folks beyond Elon that you had conversations with. I think you said you had over 250 other conversations. What were one or two that stood out to you? You know, maybe it was a fantastic conversation or just, just truly insightful uh, that you can share more stories about. I do think that May Musk, at the very beginning, his mother said to me uh, uh, how exceptional Elon was. He said, but the danger, she said, is a little, she didn't compare it to um, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, but it's that same trope, which is that Elon becomes his father. And so she's been very insightful about that. Kimball is uh, deeply understanding and sometimes has a contentious 
relationship. I mean, they were used to wrestle on the floor and bite each other uh, during the early days of uh, before PayPal and Zip2 when they were working together. Um, I did spend a lot of time talking to both uh, Claire Boucher, who is deeply, deeply insightful about Elon and very loving. Likewise, Siobhan Zillis, as you know, is a manager at Neuralink and uh, the uh, mother of two uh, children they share. Um, and, you know, then there were just people uh, he works with who truly get him. Uh, and it would give me pictures and stories and anecdotes. So the everybody who's in the orbit of Elon is fascinated by Elon. So you just have to push a button and they talk. Good, good, good. All right. And so I'm going to get to... The other thing is, you know, the, uh, watching how the personal interconnects with the engineering, even the politics. I mean, the, you know, his politics, as we've seen, has become very anti-woke. Uh, and that's changed some of his politics from when he was, you know, a donor to uh, Barack Obama and a supporter of Biden. And you have to look at his own you know, family, things that have happened. As everybody knows, he had uh, Xavier, one of his children, transitioned to be Jenna. And the way he's processed all of these things, he, you know, I find that the people in his family are very insightful about Good, good. And so my last question that I've had saved up this whole time is just, it sounds like, Walter, you have such great conversations with Elon. Of course, there's so many different topics that you can dive into, and you've spoken with so many people. So, I'm curious about your process of how to manage the, the distillation of all that information about Elon's many ventures and his viewpoints and stories. How did you manage to do all that? <laughs> well, uh, I warn you, the book is 620 pages. So distillation was incredibly difficult to get it down to 620, but I didn't distill it down to, you know, 280 characters or anything. Mm -hmm. What I do is I try to be a storyteller. I grew up in, you know, here in Louisiana, and I had a mentor named Walker Percy. He said there are two types of people come out of Louisiana, preachers and storytellers. He said, for heaven's sake, be a storyteller. The world's got too many preachers. Now, we all know people who have strong opinions that they're, you know, promulgating. Many of them smart and good people. Uh, I try to just say, all right, I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to make it a narrative. You're going to walk down the line with him. You can see what he did to the finance guy. You're going to see what happens when we get to the launch pad. I'm going to just tell you the story. And I try to let the reader do the processing. And half the readers are going to come out of this book and say, what an amazing genius. Another half are going to say, okay, he was an amazing genius, but did he have to be such an asshole or tough on these people? And I want the reader to process this uh, and maybe take, you know, he has so many fans that are fanatic fans and say, okay, but here's some complexities. And likewise, he has an amazing number of haters. I want to say, okay, but here's some complexities because it's a human fabric. 
Mm, I love that human fabric. That's a great way to end on that one. All right, folks, now we're going to jump into the q and I'm super excited about this. We're going to run for the next 20, 25 minutes. So, of course, if you're in the audience, go raise your hand. Or if you feel like it, you can also put your comments in the purple chat bubble in the bottom right. You can also send me a DM if you want. And quick reminder, I'm also going to be giving away five pre-ordered copies of this. So if you're interested, at the end, first come, first serve, put your DMs or send me a DM and we will get that to you. Thank you. All right. Herbert, good to see you, my friend. What is hey, Adam. Yep. Thank you very much, uh, Walter and Adam. Thank you for doing this. Adam, you are a professional. Thank you for doing this space. You are the best of the best for holding these amazing spaces. You ask the best questions. Uh, Walter, uh, I am a massive fan of yours forever. I've read six of your books. I've got several questions to ask you. If I can, I'll restrict, restrict it to two. <laughs> I know Adam will get mad at me. So first is, you know, um, You're doing this book on Elon Musk, but you've done books on Leonardo, Benjamin Franklin, um, Einstein. Where do, of course, my favorite uh, up to this point is Steve Jobs. (laughs) Where will Elon end up in history? And of course, your biography of Elon will play a part. You were saying earlier that it might, you know, affect uh, kind of like the observer uh, affecting history, but your books document history. Where is Elon going to fall into that? I do have a second question. Uh, maybe I'll reserve it. Yeah, I do time. think that the, you know, the most important thing is to keep the big picture in mind, which is when he started and working with the people at Tesla, we weren't going into the era of electric vehicles. General Motors got rid of the, its EV. Uh, likewise, when SpaceX was starting, we gave up on the space shuttle and we decided it was going to be decommissioned. So the big picture is that he has led us into these new eras. At, you know, there are times when people are getting, you know, wringing their knickers about who deserves which blue check mark or something. I think that will fade at a certain point and we'll be able to look at the bigger picture. That said, you know, uh, the personality will will be a fascinating and complex one, not something where you can say, you know, this is a simple person. And Herbert, you can ask a follow-up. Go for it, man. Yeah, good. Uh, so wh- where would his place be in history, though? Uh, and then second question is, I think that a few know that you were the uh, CEO of CNN. And so I'm just curious what you think about the kind of multi the, the media mass media and how they are treating Tesla, Elon Musk, um, and so forth. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I think it's hard to make a broad brush stroke, uh, about the media. I think Elon Musk makes a mistake when he says the media is this, the media is that they're extraordinarily good people who are doing a very good job covering Twitter, covering Tesla, and they're covering it in a critical way. I, I, I mean, I, I flinch when he sometimes decides that the media or the mainstream media is this, that, or the other thing. Having been part of the mainstream media, I know it ain't just one thing. And I know that they're really smart, dedicated people who may have an opinions, but, uh, uh, I think the beating up on the press, maybe I'm too defensive about it, is unnecessary. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Walter. Appreciate this opportunity. And uh, I guess you didn't feel you got an answer in the place in the yes. history. 
but I think it's close to what Steve Jobs, it'll be in the Pantheon with a Steve Jobs, also with a Henry Ford, who, you know, had many flaws, but also understood both design and manufacturing. And in some ways, he, uh, uh, yeah, he reminds me of people who get things done. And I think his place in history is probably greater than any current uh, innovator or leader. I mean, I don't see that Zuckerberg Bezos quite, uh, I think he will go down more in history. Thank you, Walter. Appreciate it. Love it. Great questions, Herbert, as always. All right, let's keep rocking and rolling. This is a fantastic conversation, folks. Keep keep raising your hands. There's plenty of people in this queue. I can't bring up everyone, so don't get mad at me in my DMs, but I'm trying to do the best that I can. Let's keep moving fast, though. We're going to go to Larry and then Austin and then Stephanie. So, Larry, thanks for being so patient. What's on your mind? Thank you, Walter. Great fan. Einstein is still my favorite book. I'm waiting for Elon to, to come out. But I, one observation and then a question. My observation is that I like an Elon much closer to Brunel than, you know, the, the great da Vinci. And I wish you would look at Brunel's life because I think he's underappreciated as one of the greatest engineers that ever lived. And my question is all about writing biographies on living people and w- whether that's a flawed precept, you know, on the very face of it. And just wanted to get your view on that since you've done biographies on both living and past. And thanks. And Walter, you are on mute just if, in case you're talking. All right. Yeah. I, I, when I did Henry, I'll tell a little story. I did Kissinger and uh, in dealing with a living person, especially, you know, uh, one controversial, takes a lot of energy. And I said, okay, next time I'm going to do somebody who's been dead for 200 years. And I did Ben Franklin. And certainly after Steve Jobs, I felt the same way. And I said, I'm going to do somebody who's been dead 500 years. And I went back and did Leonardo. Um, But I do think it's important to write the first draft of history and the second draft of history. If you're not reporting on a living person, you're not sitting next to him watching that person in operation. We learned that from Boswell and being with Dr. Johnson, which is, yeah, there's a downside. Maybe I just have to tell the story and people a century from now will say, how did he go down in history? Answer that first question. But it's important for those of us who have the chance, the opportunity to be uh, alongside somebody who's living but making a difference to try to write at least the first draft of that story and to tell it straight. I mean, I try, I try real hard to say, you can make your own judgments here. I'm just going to try to get it exactly the way I saw it and let other people, maybe in future generations even, process it. Uh, I'm here. Yep. I'm on, You're all good. Okay, I just wanted to push on pause as well. Larry, thank you for asking your question. I want to make sure to get to as many folks as possible, so let's keep rocking and rolling. Austin, it's good to see you. Hey, right. Walter. It's Austin. It's uh, hey, good to speak I'm with you again. Fan. People should go to uh, uh, should go to uh, Austin's site. He has great photographs. 
I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, but, you know, I was curious listening to you talk earlier, uh, you know, about sitting in and stuff. I was curious if you could speak a little bit on kind of the process of, you know, writing something as big as this. Um, you know, it, it sounds like a lot of it is just like being there and being in the moment. But then, you know, after kind of going through a day or maybe a night, depending on, you know, uh, what Elon and his, his team are doing, you know, what do you kind of do? Do you have kind of like a summary of the day recap? Do you, you know, write stuff down as you're sitting there listening? You know, what's your yeah, process no, I, I, to kind of keep all the information together? Yeah, I mean, I'll report every hour and every day and I keep a chronology and I have thousands of pages of notes that are in chronological order. Like, all right, 6 p.m., Twitter conference room, uh, looking at uh, spaces and what he's going to do. And I have all my notes that way. And I organize them all chronologically. Uh, they're, you know, every interview, every scene. And then I tend to try to organize a book chronologically. Some historians like to jump around, but for me, everything is narrative. One damn thing leads to another. And so if you're writing about that night, uh, he plays Elden Ring all night long and then decides at 5.30 a.m. to make a bid for an offer for Twitter, you also have to then know how that affects two days later when he's down in Boca Chica figuring out Starship. So the book, my notes are chronological and the book is chronological. And it may seem mundane, but, you know, open up the Bible. It's got the best lead sentence ever written, which is in the beginning, comma. You got to do it from the beginning and make it chronological. And and how much of like the, like the, chrono, the chronology of it makes sense, but how much of, you know, your, the information you're gathering is coming from being there in the moment and then also kind of looking at an outside perspective, like how much of the the book is kind of written in that sort of outside perspective of like do you talk about what other you know uh, other people say about him well absolutely if i go through a meeting uh or i'm going through a surge or i'm on top of a solar roof or something i'll then go back to say brian dow who was then running solar roofs was on the roof with me i'll say okay tomorrow i need to talk to you and then a month later i'll say i need to talk to you. and i'll say okay what what happened right before what was how did this all come to pass? Give me the context of this. And that's why you end up with 200 or so interviews, because I go back and say, recreate the scene for me. Now, here's a part of the question you didn't quite ask, but it's, it's, it's connected, which is I come on the scene three years ago, let's say. But I got to write about the amazing meltdowns and things happening in 2018. So... I'm dealing with people, whether it's Sam Teller or Omid Afshar or all these wonderful people, and saying, what happened that morning? What happened that afternoon? Because I want it to feel in 2018 the same narrative style that it feels in 2021 when I just happen to be in the meetings. And then, I'm sorry to ramble on on this, a third issue I had to face, and y'all be the judge of this, is there are times when I'm in the book where I'm standing there, something's happening, and me being there is part of the story. I tried very hard, and I made my wife read it a couple of times, to make sure I don't insert myself into the narrative unnecessarily. 
But also, I got to be honest with the reader. If me being in a scene or at an event is integral to understanding my observation of it, I do have some first person in there. That's all amazing. And uh, thank you very much for your insight. I'm very excited to read this in September. Yeah. And thank you, Adam, for opening Absolutely. This. Great questions, Austin. I have a million questions, too, but I'm going to save it so we can keep going for now. Uh, Stephanie, you've been so patient. It's good to see you, my friend. How are you? What's on your mind? Hi, Adam. Thanks again for hosting an incredible Twitter space. Walter, it is such a pleasure to have you here talking about this book. Walter, I had more of a question of reflection. You, you touched on this just a little bit from an author perspective. I would, I would imagine it would be a fascinating time to write about Mr. Musk. Uh, we, are, we are living in a time of the lowest attention span we've ever had. The goldfish has now beat us out, which means that we tend to, I see more people moving through the world in a very reactive way. And I think in some ways, certainly in platforms, we've lost the ability to be thoughtful and step back, check our own biases and walk through those biases and then approach another human being through a different lens. And in the world today, with that sort of in the background, and you had mentioned that you, you know, you had your wife read this a couple of times, but I'm hoping we can get back to, and again, wanted your reflections as an author, of approaching human beings as what they are, in all of their complexities, in their excellence, in their challenges, and their failures, and meet up with someone who is historical, whether you appreciate him or not, and get the most important and critical and interesting information out of someone at this stage, when you are doing a, a, a piece of writing on somebody like this, you are reaching them in this chapter. Um, this chapter will change and there will be an evolution of this. But how, how, did you, how did you sort of level set this as such an accomplished author, understanding everything that's swirling around from someone who is really an engineer and thinks very differently than many people in the world? And as a result, some of his behaviors are different. His thoughts are different. How did you approach it? Well, his time? behaviors are definitely different. And that's where the first complexity comes in. Because, uh, you know, he has a, a driven intensity that's different from most of us. And then you get to the, you know, the flaws that come from that, as well as the strengths that come from that. And what you said a moment ago, Stephanie, is so important, is that we've lost the ability to understand people in their complexities, uh, I, George Packer wrote a great book about Richard Holbrook, who was a complex person. And he showed how those complexities wove into the whole tapestry. Well, that's what I tried to do here, which is make you understand, you know, Shakespeare does it very well. Measure for Measure is one of the, the best plays because it's about how do we take a measure of a person? And in the end, one of the characters, a woman, I'm forgetting the name, says, even the best are molded by their faults. So what you have to do when you get to complexity is say, yes, these are the faults, but they're molded by the faults. And sometimes for that, they are made the better for it. Shakespeare says it better than I do. But that is what you're talking about, is us regaining the ability not to have hot takes on a person, but to have deeply layered takes on why this person has been so successful, uh, but also has these complexities. Thank you, Walter. I appreciate that. Adam, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so for folks, I'm also getting DMs. I'm getting a lot of messages as well. And so I do want to share one that I absolutely love. Uh, It's from a woman in the audience. And she asked that she's curious how Walter approached deciding to wrap up and end this book when Elon's story is so far from over. Uh, (laughs) Walk us through your mindset on that one. That was really difficult. I've never, uh, when I did Jennifer Doudna, who did CRISPR, I was thinking, okay, how is this going to end? And then suddenly her RNA technology helps create the vaccines that fight COVID and she wins a Nobel Prize. I said, great, we have a, a grand ending. And with Musk, it's more difficult. But what happened at the beginning of this year is Starship had its first test launch. He decided to start an AI company, XAI. He, the Twitter situation, uh, you know, he took it over and it's all sorts of things in those chapters about what really happened behind the scenes at Twitter. But that all happened. And I thought that this was a good time to say, okay, let's pause and take stock. But clearly there'll be other people, or maybe me, will write, you know, revised edition paperbacks, but then write the next chapter uh, in Elon's biography. I love that. I love that, Walter. And so while we're talking about Twitter, and obviously while we're on Twitter and Twitter spaces, it's a huge passion of mine. What was your overall sense of, as you have this behind the scenes perspective of Elon and everything that he went through, how did that change? How did that evolve from the moment you heard about it till today? And in, in a way, where do you see Twitter going in the future from Elon's perspective? I thought at the very beginning when uh, we were in April and in Texas and he was acquiring the stock and then offered a board seat, I was with him, his brother, with Antonio Gracias, uh, with many Ken Howery, many people talking to him. And I thought, this is a really bad fit. He understands engineering, but he doesn't understand you know, human emotions as well. Or, And he kept saying Twitter is an engineering challenge. I said, no, it's a human relations. It's a social, human social media uh, thing. It involves advertising. It involves connecting uh, with people's thoughts and emotions. So I thought this is not suited for him. And I do think that he has stepped on many landmines because it's not his natural skill set to, te- you know, take a long time, be reflective and understand how human emotions are going to be affected by things. On the other hand, his transformation of the engineering surprised me. I mean, on Christmas Eve, for example, he and his cousins, Andrew and James, are flying back to Texas, and they take a U-turn on the plane to go to Sacramento and decide on the spur of the moment to pull out the servers. It's an amazing scene in the book with Elon pulling up the tiles on the floor and clipping the cables when people say, you can't move these servers. Um, And... I thought, okay, that means in January it's not going to work. And we did see things Super Bowl weekend where it was problematic. But watching the engineering, I was stunned by how assertive he was. And I was very glad when he, right after the Starship Monday, when they aborted the takeoff with about 14 seconds left, he flew to Miami, did an ad sales conference, meets Linda Yaccarino for the first time. 
and I watch this relationship uh, evolve where he realizes she's got a feel for the stuff I don't, which is advertising and relationships on Twitter. And I said, okay, he's going to work his way through this just as he uh, did on other things. But it was, it hasn't been, it's, it's been a slog through a jungle with a lot of uh, demons coming out, coming out uh, uh, during the march. Ooh, that's an interesting perspective that you just hit on. Was I never initially thought about that, but from a Linda perspective coming into this, and that would have been obviously after you were done with your book, and obviously it's going into publication and stuff like that, right? So that's not. No, 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 no. I was. I'm still hanging around with him this April while we're launching Starship, or he is hiring Linda Yaccarino, and I'm talking to her. Uh, in fact, I'm still last night, you know, fiddling with things. So I'm making Simon and Schuster run the press as fast. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I feel like this world is so excited to hear more about Linda, but we don't know anything about her. We're so excited to have her on Twitter. Well, I come from her world and I've known her from way back. I think she worked at Turner. I used to work at what was once called Turner Broadcasting, which was part of Time Warner. So tell anyway, us Won't go there. Uh, but she's a great person, and she just has a spunky, real feel for human emotions and how to have client relationships. And Elon, whether it's with Gwen Shotwell or many other people, Elon is very good at figuring out who's the right partner to fill in some of the things I'm not going to want to do. How do you think he's good at doing that? Is there something that you notice specifically that he does to figure that out? He has a neural network for other people's talents, like for Gwen Shotwell. I have the scene on the runway where he's asking her to be the president of SpaceX. What's the second layer of that, which took me a longer time to sort through, is you have to also have a self-awareness. And I was thinking Musk is not sometimes self-aware about some of his thoughts. But then I realized, oh, yeah. He is, and it's an engineering problem for him. It's like, what components are missing and what's the best way to add them? And Linda's going to be just super and fun at this job. Good. Wow. Well, hey, folks, this has been a tremendous conversation. Walter, I'm sure we could talk all day long, not only about the book and all the stories, but we don't want to give out too much. Of course, we want people to be able to check out the book. So quick uh, reminder, the book is launched September 12th, I believe. So in a couple months, we've been talking and diving in deep about the process of Walter Isaacson's uh, writing of the book and experiences and all the great stories. So I want to promote that as well as I'm going to be giving away five pre-ordered copies of it. So if you haven't already, send me a DM uh, and I'll get to the first five, whoever was in my inbox already. Uh, but Walter, this is truly a pleasure and I hope we can do it again. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Adam, you're a very good moderator. Well, I appreciate that, Walter. And yes, again, my name is Adam Salkovich, also known as the best of live audio. I absolutely love hosting these conversations with great, fascinating thinkers and doers like Walter. There's many more to come, so I hope you'll stick around. I thank you for joining us, and I hope you all have a great rest of the day. Take care, everyone. Bye. This is the best podcast. BEST stands for business, entrepreneurship, startups, and technology. I'm your host, Adam Sockledge, and each week we talk live on social media platforms like Twitter Spaces so that you can stay up to date with the latest news and stories, learn the greatest tools and tactics, and gain some of the best opportunities to connect with new people. Special guests include top founders, CEOs, and experts. Plus, the audience is always full of fascinating people. Even Elon Musk recently tuned in. 
All of our conversations are educating, entertaining, and engaging with the mission to help you succeed. So follow us on all your favorite social media platforms, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, tune in live to the best podcast. Let's talk soon.